coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and back with me today is my longtime host, Curtis. And it is the end of the month, so that means it's listener mailbag time here on the Glory UGA Podcast. Sports might not be all the way back yet, although it does look like that's getting closer and closer to changing, so keep our fingers crossed there. But regardless, you guys have kept the questions coming, pandemic or not. We've got about 45-ish minutes to record today, so we're going to try to get through as many of them as we can. And if we get through all of them, great. Uh, If not, no worries, though. If we have any leftover questions, we will just run a part two of the mailbag later in the week to make sure we get to every single person's question. So if you don't get yours on the show today... We apologize for that, but we will make sure to get to all of them at some point this week. As always, we're leaving no questions behind. So we will get into the mailbag in about one minute. But first, real quickly, I do want to thank everyone who has helped us by rating and or reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts during this whole pandemic time. Big shout outs to Rocket Cafe and Tank P4 for being our most recent listeners to take the time to write a review. That helps us tremendously, guys. It really does. And we are very, very appreciative of that support. As it stands right now, we are only two ratings away from our very modest goal of 200 Apple Podcast ratings before this 2020 college football season starts. You guys have been awesome. We love each and every one of you. But if you haven't rated or reviewed the show yet, hey, you have a chance to, I don't know, maybe be the one who puts us over the top. So if you enjoy the show, we would be extremely grateful if you would help us out there. But all right, enough of that. Let's crack open the mailbag and see how many questions we can get through today without selling any of our very loyal listeners short. And we're going to start with kind of a big picture question here. I thought this was a good question to start off with. And this one comes from Ryan. So thank you very much for the question, Ryan. And Curry kind of has a two-part question, two very related questions here. He starts off by asking, where does Georgia's program fit in the national picture compared to other power programs? Also, how do you think the world outside of Dog Nation views Georgia. Kerr, I, I really like this question. There's a lot of different directions you could take this, and it's very subjective, so I'm very curious to get your take on this. Let's start with the second part of that question first, and uh, just tell me, Kerr, like, I'm curious what you think here. How do you think the world outside of Dog Nation, obviously we view things through red and black colored lenses. We try to be as objective as possible, but you can't entirely escape that. So how do you think everyone outside of all of us here at Dog Nation, views the Georgia football program. To be honest, they probably see Georgia as a team that's always going to compete, especially now under Kirby Smart, as you see with the recruiting classes and the way we've been the last couple of years. But until we win it, they're going to continue to see us as like almost like as we see Oklahoma when we know they get into the Final Four or to the playoffs. They're like, okay, they're in it, but what are they actually going to do? We're the team that just has trouble getting over the hump at this point. That's an interesting comparison. You- like obviously, I think most Georgia fans have a, a perception of Oklahoma, as you mentioned, as a really good program, a good Big Twelve program that's always going to be in a conversation and is competing for titles. 
because they, they do, they dominate the Big 12, but they don't ever really win anything outside of the Big 12 when they go up against the other big boys. Do you think, is that how you see other fan bases around the country viewing us where we currently sit right now entering the 2020 college football season? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we beat Oklahoma and, you know, all that stuff happened that one year. But really since then, we've, you know, we've lost that one game that's always screwed us and then lost in the SEC championship game. So we've never we've had trouble winning that big game that we've really needed to win when it came down to it. And so, I mean, I, I honestly believe until we actually win it, that's how we're going to be viewed. How much of that do you think is based on the fact that we play in the SEC? Would it be would people perceive us differently if we played in the Big 12 or the ACC as opposed to the SEC? Um, no, I still think we'd be like them. Like, I mean, you look at Ohio State and Oklahoma, they're very viewed very similarly, where Georgia would be just like in that same boat. But until you went out and won that big game, it was you'd still have that same thought process about them. I do think, I, I totally hear what you're saying. I respect that. I think we might be viewed a little bit differently because, like, to me, like, the, the, the issue is that we haven't, since Kirby's been here, as good as we've been, to the point he's elevated our program, I mean, the, high, the highest point we've been really since 1980, we still have yet to be the best team in our conference on any of those years. Yeah, we won the SEC in 2017, but then we lost to the team that didn't even make it to the title game in the national championship game. So I, I have a hard time saying we were the best team in the SEC that year. So we've gotten there. We've been so consistent, so good, like so consistently good, but we've never been the best team in our own conference. And I think if we played in – the reason I'm in the Big 12 the ACC – and I've talked about this before, the path to the playoff for Oklahoma and Clemson is just infinitely easier than what it is for us in the SEC. I'm not saying those programs aren't great. I'm not saying Clemson hasn't had a better program than this. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's been – like it, it's a fact. It's easier for them to get there based on the path within their conference that it, that they have to get through in order to get there. Ours is just – is there's more obstacles in our way. So I guess what I'm saying is if – I think we would have had more opportunities in the college football playoff if we did not play in the SEC – if we played in the ACC or the Big 12, which I know is not reality, but like if we played in different conference, I think we would have had more opportunities to be in the college football playoff. Like if we played in the Big 12, don't you think, Kurt, we would have won the Big 12 each of the last three or four years? Yeah, I would. And that, and if we would have done that, then we would have been in the college football playoff three or four of the last however many years. And if you're there more consistently, you just have more opportunities to win. Now, I know Oklahoma still hasn't won one, but – I think that we've had a better program than Oklahoma, honestly. We just, we just have played in different conference. I think we've had a better chance to one of those years, something goes right. Because when you get in the, in the playoffs, I mean, it's a one one or two-game shot there. If you can win the semifinal game and you got a, just a one-game shot, a national title, anything can happen because we've been close enough. Like I'm not saying we've been the best team in the country any of the last three or four years, but I think we've been close enough in the conversation to where if we got to the national championship game, anything could happen in, the, in that game just because we were close enough to beat those teams. I don't think you can say that for any other t- – for most teams in America, but I think we were close enough. Maybe not the best team, but close enough. And if you're close enough, anything can happen on a given day. So I think that does affect it to a degree. But the fact is we're in the SEC, and that's what we have to live with. So, like, where do you – like, I guess you kind of answer this to a degree, but if you had to put this into tiers, Kirk, because I, I kind of think about this in tiers, tiers of programs. Because I said we had three tiers. Where would Georgia fit in the national picture? Right now I'm going to put – yeah, I'll put us top ten. I mean – if you had the tier one, you'd say like the top five teams. I maybe put us right outside that. Yeah, I, I think I would. Like, I would have us probably in the top four or five. I mean, I would. For yeah, me, I mean, I, I to me, I have us competing with that fifth spot. The only reason I put LSU or someone ahead of us is because they actually, you know, went out and had that perfect season and won it. 
but we've been one of the more consistent teams, especially since Kirby Smart has taken over. But it's just still hard when another team's gone out there and put it all together. Yeah, I, yeah, that's that's interesting. LSU is an interesting. I I thought about them for a while. Like, would I put them in a tier ahead of us or the same tier with us? Because yes, they won it all last year. That was the best team I've seen in a while, maybe ever in my lifetime in college football. But that was kind of an anomaly for them, like in this decade, really. I mean, it was the first time they've been to a BCS yeah. bowl. I remember. I, I guess 2018 was the first time they've been to a BCS or New Year's Six bowl since 2011. And so they kind of came out of nowhere. They haven't been consistently competing for titles. They just haven't. And we, I think we've been more consistently competing for titles than LSU has this past decade. Now they won the whole thing last year, which might, I can, I can see the argument to give them a leg up. But for me, and this is just how I look at it, I would have Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio State in the top tier right now. I think they're in a tier alone yeah, higher than I, everyone else. Would you put anyone else in that tier? Um, I mean, maybe Oklahoma, like we said, because they're consistently in it, but they haven't yeah. won it. But that's the only one that's borderline, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I think I think Oklahoma's a borderline conversation there. I and because they have been in it just about every year. They've won the big. They've dominated the Big Twelve. But again, I just go back to like this is my perception. My perception, I see Oklahoma dominating the Big Twelve and getting there because the Big Twelve is just so weak and they don't have the. Yeah, competition. I, I do agree. I mean, you can say the same about Clemson, even though they do win the big games. Um, the conference just is not there. But the, the, I think the difference between Clemson and Oklahoma for me is Clemson has those high-profile wins. They have the wins over Alabama. Yeah. They have the wins over Ohio State. They have those high-profile wins. Yeah, and that, that's the big difference between the two. Oklahoma's always yeah. been blown out or, I mean, in our case, we barely beat them. Um, but other than that, since they've been in, they haven't really been a competitive team. Yeah, I mean, I just – yeah, so I, I see Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State on a tier alone. I mean, Clemson – I cracked the I, – I, I crunched the numbers, 41-3 and three over the last – I think it was – yeah, last three seasons. Clemson's 41-3, and three, which is crazy – uh, Alabama's 38-4, Ohio State's 38-4. Ohio State, by the way, is one – they have had eight straight 10-win seasons, 14 last 15 seasons Ohio State's had a 10-win year. That's crazy. I, I knew they were great. I didn't like. I didn't know that level of consistency. That's insane. Uh, I guess when you have Urban Meyer, I, that's kind of how it works. So, and like, As the host of a Georgia podcast, like I know that we're supposed to say, yeah, we're in that top tier, but I have to be objective about this. I, I just don't think you can say that we're in that absolute top tier of programs. I think we've put ourselves in the conversation – with how Kirby's elevated the program over the past couple of years, last three seasons. I mean, think about it, Kirby. We've had three straight SEC championship appearances. One of those turned into an SEC title. We had that epic Rose Bowl win, had a Sugar Bowl win, which is nice. Um, and, of course, the heartbreaking loss in the national title game. They had that college playoff appearance. Um, and also, I mean, I know we didn't get in, but consecutive years being the first team left out. And, and also, like even when we've lost some of the high-profile games, like to Bama, I guess, We've been we've been so close in those games. Like there's two games in this game where we had to lead late, but just like kind of let it slip through our fingers. So I think we've gained the nation's respect. I think the nation respects us more than they did in the Mark Rick era. Is that fair to say? Yeah, Kevin? I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe you could argue the early part of the Mark Rick tenure where he like because the, there was a moment in time in Mark Mark Rick's tenure early on where the conversation was kind of like what it is now for Kirby. Is like, hey, it's not a matter of if, it's when Mark Rick wins a title. And that never actually came to fruition. But I do think we're I think we've gotten more respect over the past couple of years than we ever did at any point under under Mark Rick. And I love Mark Rick. I'm not trying to to crap on him. He he's he was awesome uh, for most of his tenure and I love the guy. Um it was time for him to go, but still love the guy. And I, and I think if you poll college ball fans, I think we would be I think most fans out there would put us at or near the top of the teams that are probably most likely to win their first college ball playoff championship in the near future. But as you said, Kurt, I, th- I think you're right, man. Like the fact is, we just haven't won it. Like we know how long it's been. Was it for, going on forty years now, man? It's crazy. 
uh, since Herschel Walker, his days, and he's running wild and everyone. Like, we've been close. Some of the years we've been unlucky. Even Mark Rigg, like, there are a couple years, like 2002. If there's a college football playoff, we might have won the whole thing in 2002. But there wasn't. In 2007, if there was a college football playoff, we might have won the whole thing. But there wasn't. So we've just been unlucky at times. Like, we've been really good and just the years just didn't kind of unfold how we needed it to. And, of course, we've blown it a time or two. But, you know, whatever the reason is, like, we haven't gotten it done. So, yeah, I don't think we're quite in the top tier. I do have us in that second tier. I mean, we've gone 36-7 and seven over the last three years with some high-profile wins. I put Oklahoma there with us. I'd have LSU in that same tier. And I'm not even I, – I know this doesn't sound crazy to most people. I might because they haven't won the high-profile games. And that, this is, that would be the knock on them. I might throw Notre Dame in there. Because if Oklahoma's in there, I mean, they, have almost, they actually have an identical record at to Notre Dame over the last three seasons. Notre Dame has three straight 10-win seasons for the last five. And I know everyone hates Notre Dame, and it's popular to hate on them. But, I mean, they've been really consistent the past couple years. So, I don't know. Do, would it, if we won the national title this year, Kurt, does that put us in the top tier? I think it'd be hard to argue against it when you start looking at the resume. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Because to me, like, tiers so – people talk about blue blood programs. It's kind of like it's a, it's a fixed thing. Like, you can't move up and down. But that, that comes and goes because, I mean, USC used to be a blue blood program. Now they're not. Yeah. It, it really is just – to me, it's really what have you done the last five to ten years nowadays. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, you can look back at history. Some people do it historically. Because there was a long time for Emma was for almost 20 years oh god yeah uh, yeah that's a great point and like in michigan and penn state people still talk about them like they're blue bloods but they i mean what have they won in a long time a long time so i i think it's it's got it it you there's there's flexibility you can move up and down there's mobility within these tiers and i think we've moved ourselves up. I, I would probably i would have had us in tier two uh four years ago i wouldn't but i think we've elevated our program to that point now and i think it's going to take us to win national title before we move up into that top tier, which I think is going to happen sooner rather than later. But the fact is, I just, I hate to say it. I just don't think we're, we're quite there yet. I think you and I are in agreement on that one, Kurt. All right. So great question to start us off today. Let's move on to the next question here. We've talked about this a couple of times, but I'm happy to talk about it a little bit more today. This question is from Jordan. Thanks for the question. Jordan says, I'm really excited about our incoming wide receiver class. Which of those guys do you think has the best chance to crack the starting lineup at some point this season, is there a George Pickens in that group? So, Kurt, we, we haven't necessarily answered it in that way. Is there a George Pickens in this group? I don't think there's a George Pickens in that group. Um, I just don't. Not. I mean, not at this time. That I think is up to what he was because George. I mean, George for the most part was one of the guys that separated himself when it came to recruiting in general. But if I had to pick two people, I'm looking at Jermaine Burton and um, Marcus Roseme. Yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to argue with that. I, I don't think, honestly, you could argue with it. I mean, Arian Smith could be the fastest guy on the team, but it's just the position that he's going to be in where you're kind of deep already with a lot of guys similar with that body type. Yeah, and, and if you're talking about is there a George Pickens, Arian Smith is not the same type of receiver as George no, Pickens. There's not, no George Pickens, but I think if anyone's yeah. closest, Rosemey's the closest physicality-wise. Yeah, I think from a physical makeup standpoint, yeah, Rosemey would probably be closest to that. Um Robinson has got the size as well. Justin Robinson has the size, but I don't know if he is as athletic as Rosemey and Pickens, uh, at least from what I've seen in his tape. And, uh, obviously, they didn't throw the ball that much where he's coming from in high school. So I just – and maybe maybe there's more there. And I, I'm actually really high on Robinson. I've heard some really good things about him. 
And what I saw from his senior tape was much more impressive than what I ever saw from him um, prior to that. So I think he has a really high upside. Like I'm really high on all these receivers. It's really hard for me to pick. So I actually, I went back and watched as much tape as I could find on all these guys just to kind of get a better feel for them. I'd obviously watched a lot of tape before, but I wanted to get a better look at where these guys were and who I thought might be closest to Pickens. I think I might be leaning. You mentioned one guy. I think I might be leaning Jermaine Burton. Uh, he's not the, the the kind of guy that's the, the same kind of physicality as Pickens, but in terms of like the impacts he might make, I think it might be Burton. I think at least early on, Burton is the guy of all the guys coming. I think is would you agree because that he's maybe the most polished of all those guys coming in? I think it's it's a tight race between him and Rosemi, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think you can make an argument for Rosemi. I, I I just I'm not watching Burton. I, I I put up some camp footage of him. Went back and watched. Burton his is probably game. more technician. Yeah, that, that's and that's what I'm going with. like. Just from a technical standpoint, playing that position. I'm not saying the other guys don't do those things well. They do, but I think Burton is just maybe a notch above everyone else in the class in that respect. So I think that might give him potentially a leg up on trying to get on the field early on. He's also extremely athletic in his own right. He's not quite as fast as Arian Smith, but he's really fast. Um, he's not going to go and be as physical at the top of the route as Rosemary Robinson, but he ain't no slouch there either. So I, I, I think he might be the guy now, and I know I've changed my opinion on this, but going back and watching more tape, got some new information and kind of just changed my view on that a little bit. But I wouldn't be shocked if it's Rosemary. I think he's got the best combination of all things. Where when it comes to size, speed, athleticism, polish, the, the combination of all those things, he might be the most complete receiver i guess you could potentially say i think like i said i think justin robinson might be the biggest upside because he's further away from what i think he can be ultimately Aries smith's definitely got the, the the best speed of the groups and and if you look at what we've what not what we've done but what todd Munkin has done in his career he likes to push the ball vertically down the field and arian smith is a guy that you can certainly do that with and Aladdin mcconkey i don't see him on the same level as the other guys are you with me on that kurt yeah i do yeah, I, I think he'd be a good player. I, like we mentioned uh, when he first when we first ended up signing him, I, he's the kind of guy that if we didn't sign him, someone else would like a Kentucky or something like that, and he'd be one of those guys you kind of shake your head a couple years down the road down the road and be like, dude, how do we ever let this guy get out of the state? How do we not find this guy? So I think he can be a good player. I just don't see him on the same level necessarily right now as as the other guys in the class. Still pretty high on what he can be for us in a couple of years. So, uh, all right, good question, Jordan. Appreciate it, man. All right, next up, this is another interesting question here, Kurt. All right, this is from Dane. Thanks for the question, Dane. He asks, which player on the 2020 roster will end up being the highest NFL draft pick whenever they become draft eligible? This is an interesting question, Kurt. I think there's a number of different candidates here. It's, and a lot of the guys, I think, that are highest on my list, we haven't seen them play in the red and black yet, so it's kind of hard to gauge. But who would you go with if you had to pick one guy? Uh, I'm probably going to go with Keely Ringo. He was honestly the very first one that came to mind. Yeah, because, me. I mean, already you see him working out with the pro guys. I mean, this, his physical. I mean, he has all the makeups to be one of those top 10 DBs yep. taken off the board. I mean, that's the thing. DeAndre Baker, one of his biggest knocks was his size. And Ringo has the size and the speed. Um, and when you have a coach like Kirby Smart and things like that, I have faith that he's going to be in a position to be successful. So if I had to pick someone, I think he'll be a top 10 guy. Keely Ringo is such a stud, man. Like, honestly, if you let's say we go back to NCAA 2014 and you're creating your ideal DB in that game to put on your team, I think Keely Ringo is what you make from a, a size, speed, athleticism, ball skills, technique standpoint, the the whole deal. Keely Ringo's got it, man. Like, he is exactly – he is the prototype. He's what Kirby Smart's looking for with the size, that length, the speed, the, everything, the athleticism. The guy's just off the charts. 
I don't know what 2020 is going to hold for him because we have uh, some upperclassmen ahead of him right now that are really, really good in their own right. But it's going to be hard to keep him off the field in some capacity this year. I think we're going to find a way to get him on the field because this guy's. I think he's that good. And and after this year, 2021, 2022, I mean, he's going to, he's going to be our best corner. I, I firmly believe that. And I, I think he – I mentioned this before. I think he potentially, when it's all said and done, a couple of years down the road, he might end up being the top player in this entire 2020 class. I would not be shocked to see him as, as a top 10 NFL draft pick at all. Uh, corners are valuable. Shutdown corners are valuable. Oh, I don't know if I really agree – or I don't know if I believe in the idea of a shutdown corner anymore with the way the rules have been structured – in recent years to favor offenses. But I think he's one of those guys that has the ability, the potential to get as close as you can get to that in the modern age of college football. So I, I'm really high on him. Is there anyone else, Kurt, that you like considered? It's hard. I mean, you can always think Nolan Smith or someone. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, even from, uh, Salier, maybe if he comes in, has a great year with his athletic ability. Yeah. But it's really hard to – I don't really see a lot of upperclassmen because if they were, they would have already gone. I think what Matt, yeah, that's actually that's a great point because almost every one of these guys on my list are actually every one of them are freshmen or rising sophomores, and I, part of that's because we were just recruiting lights out right now. And I think you also to factor in like what position they play because look, there's just certain positions that are priorities in the NFL. Running back is not one of them. So I don't care how you are, how good you are as a running back, it's tough to get drafted that high these days as a running back. So you look at offensive, you look, you, not just offensive tackles, but left tackles primarily. You look at quarterback, you look at corner, you look at defensive tackle, you look at pass rusher. Those are the, to me, those are the priority positions in the NFL right now because it's all about a passing league. You want a guy that can throw the ball, you want guys that can defend the pass, you want guys that can rush the pass rusher, you want guys that can protect the pass rusher. So Nolan Smith is one of those guys for me. Uh, now, based off his freshman year, you wouldn't say that, but I think he has potential to do much more than that. I think he will. Broderick Jones is a guy that I think has the, the skill set to get there at some point. We haven't seen him in the red and black, so we don't really know, but like from an athletic standpoint, He's got he's got the goods. He's just got to go out there and get it done. Jalen Carter on the defensive line is another guy that, again, hasn't gotten it done. But you guys know how high I am on Jalen Carter and what this guy can ultimately be. So those are a couple other names, but I'm with you, Kirk. Keely Ringo, to me, was the first one that came to mind. All right, moving on here. And this is another great question, man. You guys totally killed it this time around. You always do, but you sent in a ton of great questions especially given that it's June and there's not really much, if anything, going on right now. So another good one here. And this one is from Mason. I don't know if we've had a question from Mason before. So I appreciate you sending this one in, Mason. And what Mason asked, Curtis, is that since you guys travel to a lot of the road games, where does Sanford Stadium rank as a home field advantage environment? All right, so yeah, I've been fortunate enough to travel to just about every... SEC road environment. Have not been in Tuscaloosa because last time we played there, I was still in college. Uh, have not been to A and M, but I've been about just every just about every other environment in the SEC. Kurt, you've actually been to a couple of games I know in Tuscaloosa, so you can speak to that. Uh, I, I, however, cannot. You went to the LSU Alabama game last year, right? I did. Yes. So yeah, you have a, a pretty good frame of reference to operate off of there. Where would you put Sanford Stadium? I probably put in the top three, but with a. Uh... Personally, between LSU, Auburn, and Georgia, uh, you know, Auburn's, a, it, they just, they get rowdy there. I mean, it is a loud stadium. Uh, to me, no, it's hard to beat LSU. Um, LSU is probably my clear cut number one. And yeah. it's between Georgia and Auburn for number two. Um, Tuscaloosa, I was actually really shocked. You know, I went to the Alabama-Tennessee game and the Alabama-LSU game, which are both big games for them. And the in-game atmosphere is just, I was actually very shocked at 
it's not as loud as you would think it is being the bowl or, you know, the closed in bowl and everything. Right. Um, it, it's not as loud. I mean, I, I would almost say Georgia rocks um, louder, especially, you know, some of the games, like when you talk about the Notre Dame game, uh, some of the Auburn games that we've been to. So I would definitely put it between those top three. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually very similar in, in my ranking here. I would definitely have Tiger State number one. I only been there one time, went there in 2018. You and I were both and that there. Was just, that was still a midday game. And yeah. all you hear about is how crazy the night games are there. Yeah, absolutely. And that, yeah, that was a 3.30 game, and that was insane. And the thing about LSU is it's not just the in-game. I mean, I know that question was about the, the in-game environment, but it's everything about the, the, the environment. It's not just what's happening in the stadium. That's, that, that is as, as impressive as any stadium I've been in, just the stadium itself. But the tailgating, I, I've never seen anything like it in my life. I, have you, Kurt? Like, I've never seen anything like that in my life. No, it's, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely a sight to see. It's a way of life. And, and, but not just the tailgate. Like, the animosity they have for the visiting fan base is also, like, nothing I've never seen in my life. Uh, you know, in most SEC stadiums, like, most people in the South, you know, nice, cordial, polite. For the most part, you have your drunk, idiot college kids. Sure, you have those. But, like, your average fans, nice, decent human being, right? I don't think you say the same thing about LSU fans. Are you with me on that? Yeah, not at all. Like, no, they, uh, man, like, I'm talking like 60 year old women just try, they, they want to murder you as you walk to the stadium. Like, they're shouting obscenities your way. You're like, woman, oh my God, what's happening? <laughs> Did you kiss your grandchildren with those lips? Like, it's insane. It's crazy. Uh, so, Tiger Stadium is, yeah, it's on another level. It's up there, uh, number one for me. Jordan Hare. Uh, so, I, I have mixed feelings on Jordan Hare. I think it depends on the, the game. And I guess you can say that about a lot of stadiums. But I've been I've been to Georgia Auburn games before where I'm like I I went to the game I'm like dude like this is like what are they talking about this being a tough environment like I went in 2015 and we were and that was you know the year Marker got fired and we needed to win that football I thought actually winning that game was a big at the time thought it might save his job that was a, a close game down the stretch there but that I was totally unimpressed with the environment in 2015 now 2017 that game were you were you there at that game Kurt I don't think so. Yeah, in 2007, you were there last year, right? Oh, I was there at 17, yeah. Yeah, you were there at 17, right? Yeah, you were there at 17. I thought you were. That's right, because we met up before the game. That's right. But yeah, I mean, dude, Jordan Hare in 2017, that that one game was just about as loud as any opposing environment I've been in outside of Tiger Stadium. And then 2019, I I thought last year it was – I don't think it was quite as loud because the stakes weren't as high for them as it was – as they were in 2017. But it was still – uh, a rocking environment there's no doubt there so after the last two times we played there i might have changed my tune on jordan here uh previously before those two those two games i would have told you like no it's way down the list for me but they, they've kind of changed my mind there and then the sleeper picker that i don't know if a lot of people talk about as much because they're not really traditionally a great program is williams bryce stadium south carolina stadium uh it, it sucks to get to because it's down in the middle of a fairground it's like a mile and a half walk down there it's it, that sucks and it's usually very hot to get there Oh, this year, if we actually have a season, it's much later in the year. So maybe it won't be as hot. So that's nice. Um, so that completely sucks. There's nothing around the stadium whatsoever. So getting there sucks. But when you get in there, like it's a, like, especially when they were pretty good, like under Spurrier, was it 2012? I want to say when they just destroyed us when Aaron Murray was, I think it was 2012. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Like it was a night game and it was like, oh, they just murdered us that game. It was, it was terrible. It was no contest. And the walking back again, like a mile and a half, two miles back to the hotel. After that game, I mean, look, when you lose a game on the road, it's never a great walk back to the hotel or back to the bar or restaurant, wherever you're going. But that was by far the worst 
experience of my life at a visiting stadium because they like just w- what horrible people were saying to my to my wife was just I, I don't know I, I can still never forgive that fan base for that one night um, but it's pretty right I had the towels yeah, they play sandstorm the towels waving and rocking uh, which is just cool for them um, so that place can be really loud when they're good and like and honestly they see us as their top rival in the conference so when we're there it's always a rocky environment so that place is very underrated Neyland Stadium Kurt is that anywhere close to the top for you a huge stadium. It's been a while since it's been a while since they're good, and at the same time, I feel like they pump in a lot of fake noise. Yeah, Neyland, I know it's a huge stadium, but like that, I mean, the last couple times we've been there, that stadium has not been full because they've been terrible. So maybe back in the '90s, before I was going to games, you could say that. But since I, I mean, I've been to every Georgia Tennessee game since I graduated college. So that's what, like, 2007? No, 2000. I guess 2009 was the first one I went to. And I've been every year since then, and I'm I'm never like it's a it's a good environment, I guess, but never have I have I left that stadium like man, dude, whew, man, what what a crazy crowd! Like I've never really felt that way. And by the way, they only have one cheer. Like Rocky Top is it for them? Not that that necessarily matters, but that that, that is like they play Rocky Top every 27 seconds in that stadium because they have no other cheer, and uh, they just better hope to God that they don't find out that at some point there's some racist background at Rocky Top because if that is the case, then they will have no cheers whatsoever in that stadium. That is it. That's all they got. That's all they got. Even when they even when they get killed, they play they in this in the game playing Rocky Top because why not? That's all they got. So yeah, I mean that's kind of how I would look at it. Tiger Stadium number one. I would actually put Sanford Stadium at number two. Although I would say like this can change. Like, would you say, Kerr, since Kirby Smart got here, the environment in Sanford has changed pretty dramatically? It would if they just stopped playing some of their certain, you know. Uh, oh, don't get me started on the, on the ing. Yeah, um, I think the, the crowd has been great, but the, the ing. The like crowd the has ing- been great, other than when they kill it with those dumb sing-alongs. Um, oh my That's God. the only time you, the the air really comes out the stadium yeah. is when you hear those crappy songs and all the fan base yeah. is just gets annoyed. Um, hey but guys, other than that, I know what everybody they, wants. Let's play Bashy Boys to have the entire crowd sing along. What could or, possibly uh, go wrong? John Bon Jovi living on a dream. I've, I've heard that song enough. Oh my yeah, living on a prayer. Oh my god, it just and it's the living same. It's literally it's the same songs every year. It's the same songs every year. They don't change it. It, it drives me insane. It's just yeah. And, and I think it's got like outside of that, the in-game environment. That I guess the music, the entertainment that's pumped in has gotten better, especially with the lights last year. Like the Notre Dame game was unbelievable, right? Like that was insane. That's probably the best that game atmosphere I've been to. Yeah, like that was yeah, that might have been the best in-game atmosphere I've been to. Period. I mean, I truly believe that. Like that, but that's not that's that's not the rule yet. Like we're getting closer there. I don't know if that's the rule yet. And also, it, like it also hurts us that our biggest rival we never played them in Sanford Stadium. Like we never played Florida in Sanford Stadium. I think people might think differently about Sanford Stadium if we had Florida here every once in a while, which obviously is probably not going to happen because we just re up that deal with Jacksonville. So I think that factors into it just on some level. But yeah, I, I think under Kirby, it's kind of taken on a new level because we've also been so much better too. And there were there were isolated games in the market there, like 2013, the South Carolina game that year, and the LSU game that year were really rocking. But it just got kind of stale towards the end. Like there there was a time where it was kind of like a wine and cheese crowd in Sanford Stadium. But I think that's kind of changed since Kirby's gotten here. We kind of elevated the program, so I think we've moved up. And I would have us right now in the ACC least. And I've been to most of just about every stadium. I would have us right there behind Tiger Stadium. Now I think there's a pretty big gap between Sanford Stadium and Tiger Stadium right now. But I would probably have us number two right now. Yeah, that's where I would go. All right, next up, we've got Anthony uh, has a hypothetical for us. So, Anthony, appreciate the question. He says, all right, if Kirby ever left for the NFL, which other current SEC coach besides Nick Saban 
So you got to throw him out, Kirk. Would be your first choice to hire. So if, you had, if so, for replacing Kirby, and it has to be an SEC coach, Kirk, a current SEC coach, besides Nick Saban, who would be your first choice? Um, oh, that's a tough one. I have to think about. I this may one. go with Dinkowitz up at Missouri. Really? Why drink? Okay, I, now he was not one I consider. Why would you go with Drinkwitz? Um, I think he's a young guy on the come up, honestly. Um, and I think that's I why that. I go with him. I want to go young. I definitely am not going anyone in the East. Really, I can't really stand anyone in the East except for him. And in the West, um, I think Coach O is in his where he needs to be in Louisiana, recruiting those kids. Um, yeah. and I, you're right. I don't that, think Coach O would translate outside of Louisiana as well. Like, I, I just don't think he would translate. Are you with me on that? And that, yeah, exactly. I think that like you know, keeping those kids in state where they you know get a lot of their stud players fits them well because of you know his personality and being at home there and he's mr louisiana um, exactly and that's why i and outside nick say i really don't know who i would consider as i mean maybe jimbo but i i think that he's a little overrated in his own right um so that, that's why i go with dinkwich i think that's someone on the rise who could grow into the program you want an offensive coach yeah yeah, I, I think I might go offensive as well. I mean, unless it's like you can control. hire a defensive guy and give him full control. Yeah, and I know Kirby's a defensive guy. I get that, but like in, in Kirby's value, like he has value as a defensive mind, obviously. But his value is so much more than that in terms of organizationally building the program, recruiting, all those kind of things. To me, there's the first criteria for me is you got you got to be able to recruit. Like if you can't yeah. recruit, you're not winning big. I don't care how good of a coach you are. If you want to win the whole thing, if you want to be in the college football playoff, you got to have the players. You got to be able to recruit. So that's that was the number one criteria for me. Now, obviously, you got to coach too. You know, you can't be a guy that just gets players and never coaches them up. I get that, but that's kind of why I went with Jimbo. I would go with Jimbo. I think because I, look, I mean, the, the guy's resume, his track record speaks for itself. Uh, he's got, I think, six out of last seven, six out of seven years at Florida State. He had ten wins. Obviously, won the national title with Jameis Winston, um, and he was as a recruiter. It was never a Nick Saban level recruiter, and FSU has the potential to be a recruiting superpower. But he averaged a top five class while at Florida State, so not necessarily the the elite of the elite, but still good enough along with his coaching ability. Uh, he's averaged a top five class over the last two seasons at Texas A and M. Hasn't quite gotten them over the hump this year. We'll see what what or hasn't gotten them over the hump yet. We'll see what this year brings for them. I think there's a chance they might get over the hump this year. So I think I would probably go with Jimbo because he he's proven that he can do it. He can do that. He can recruit. He can coach. He can win. My sleeper pick here would be Mark Stoops from Kentucky. I love the guy. I I, I don't I should say I don't love the guy. I respect the guy tremendously. He does more with less. I think anybody in the conference. And I know people would point to Dan Mullen and say he does more or less. No 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 no. I think Mark Stoops is that guy. No, because Stoops has had Florida beat multiple years. Yeah. I think Stoops is that guy. I think Mark. I think Florida State. I don't know if they were how heavily they were going after him, it, it, and I don't know how interested he would have been. I know he was the former the defensive coordinator there before he took the job at Kentucky. If he was interested in Florida State, I think they're absolutely insane for not hiring him. Like I had that much respect for that guy. He does. I know. I know they don't recruit on our level or anywhere close to it. But we're talking about Kentucky guys, not Kentucky basketball. It's on Kentucky football. And he does a great job recruiting relative to what that program is. The way he can recruit Ohio, bring guys in like Lynn Bowden, the guys that, that definitely is getting guys that Ohio State's kind of overlooking and doesn't really want. But still, to be able to go in and get those guys, be other Big Ten programs for them, 
it's been really impressive. Without, I mean, there's not much of a national recruiting base in Kentucky at all. So he's going to go out of the state, and he's done it consistently. And one thing that I, that just blew my mind last year, I thought their defense would fall off, just fall off the cliff last year after they lost all those guys with the Josh Allen team. They were so good defensively in 2018. But with all those young guys, they were actually statistically almost every category better than what they were in 2018 with Josh Allen and all those guys. The dude is a legit coach, man. So I think if you gave him the keys to a, to a Mercedes, uh, I think that guy is going to win. I, I really believe that. And I, I think it's only a matter of time until he gets an opportunity at one of those places. I think he's going to win big when he gets that opportunity. I, I really believe that. So he'd be a name that I would strongly consider if maybe Jimbo turned us down. All right, moving on here. Got a question from our guy, Cliff. Always appreciate it, Cliff. All right, Cliff asks, what's more likely? Is it more likely that Tennessee upsets Florida in Knoxville or that Florida upsets Georgia in Jacksonville? He says, neither is likely, but I think the talent gap is a lot smaller between Tennessee and Florida. What are your thoughts? What do you think? I would actually probably go with that pick because I think Tennessee will have a decent defense this year and match up wise well with Florida. Yeah, I think they would both be upsets. I don't think I would pick Tennessee to beat Florida. I don't think I'd pick Florida to beat us right. Actually, I know I would not pick Florida to beat us right now. So yeah, I think they would both be upsets. But in terms of which one would be more likely, I I totally agree with Cliff. And I and Cliff, you know, man, I I actually completely agree with your reasoning here. I believe actually I crunched the numbers, and, it, it, and I know numbers don't tell you everything because some guys outplay their rankings, some guys are overvalued in, in recruiting. I get all that, but it's a pretty good starting point, it's a good frame of reference. And if you look at over the last four years, so basically an entire roster of players. Last four years, we have finished uh, in the final 247 composite team rankings on average with the number 1.75 ranked class. We've had two number one classes, a number two class, and a number three class. Florida, in the same four years, has finished on average with a number 10.7 class, all right? And the Tennessee's finished on average 15.2. So what you're looking at there, if you're based on recruiting and talent, which I think is where you have to start, it's not everything, but it's a great starting point. I think it's the biggest factor. It's basically a nine-spot difference between us and Florida, 1.75 and 10.7, versus a four-and-a-half spot difference between Florida and Tennessee, 10.7 versus 15.2. So, yes, the gap between Florida and Tennessee, based on recruiting metrics, is much smaller than the gap between Georgia and Florida. And, by the way, they are playing in Knoxville, good chance it could be a night game, while we are playing Florida on a neutral site. Yeah, it's going to say a Florida, but it's a neutral site, all right? So I totally agree with that if you just look at it based on numbers. And if you watch the teams play, I absolutely think that Tennessee is closer to Florida than Florida is to us from an eye test standpoint as well. I know everyone in the country is really high on Kyle Trask. We've talked about that. We kind of debunked that here on the show, at least based on how we're seeing it. I do have concerns about Tennessee at quarterback. I have more concerns about Tennessee at quarterback right now than I do Florida. I think Trask is good, solid, capable. Don't think he's a game changer. I don't know what Tennessee's got, man. There's there's so much volatility there at that position. Somebody can come in and bring some stability this year, maybe. But we haven't seen that from anybody on the roster to this point. But it is at home. I do think they're going to be better defensively. And I think that they have a chance to keep – that defense has a chance to keep them in the game. And as long as they just don't screw it up offensively, I would not be shocked if they won. I wouldn't pick it right now. I need to see both those teams on the field first. But it certainly wouldn't shock me. I think it's far more likely that Tennessee pulls that upset at home over Florida than Florida somehow find a way to end our streak uh, against them in Jacksonville this year. So, yeah, I'm with you, Cliff. Definitely with you, my friend. All right, moving on here. We've got a question from Epic College Football. Thank you for the question. He asks, how much better do you think our offense could have been last season if we still had Jim Chaney? Curtis, I actually love this question. 
Uh, it doesn't matter anymore, but it's just fun to think about. So what's your take? Would we have would things have been any different at all with Jim Chaney as the coordinator last year? Maybe a little bit better. Um, I just don't know how much better because I don't think Jim Chaney was that great of an in-game coach um, when it came down to it either. So I think that's one of the biggest things. And he was also at the same time one of these coaches that was very similar to James Coley. And, you know, they had the players fit their system instead of fitting the system to the players. Yeah, I don't think there were some minor differences in the schemes that we ran with Coley and Chaney, but structurally, in large part, it was very similar. There were some minor differences, but it was very similar. We ran a little more zone scheme under Coley last year than we did under Chaney, although we did run some with Chaney as well. I thought we were more diversified in the run game under Chaney. We didn't see as much of that with Coley. And I think also we, part of it was a personnel issue, obviously a receiver, especially when, when Lawrence Cajun went down. And the problem was, as you said, we were trying to fit some of our skill players into a system that didn't really mesh with the skill sets that they brought to the table. It was 100% a square peg, round hole scenario. We had guys, as we said many times, we've had guys on the team that could do certain things, but we were asking them to do things that did not fit their skill set. We were asking them to do things that fit the skill set of the guys that we had two and three years ago which was just never going to work out. So I think partly it was scheme and I, I, maybe Chaney would have, would have, would have altered the scheme to a degree to fit the skill set of the players that we had. I don't know. We will never find out, but I think here's what I would say. Like, do you think we were going to beat LSU Kurt, if, if Jim Chaney was calling plays last year? Not without Lawrence Cager. No, we were not being LSU. If, if the injury fact, if, if we still were without Lawrence Cager, we're still without Don DeAndre Swift mainly for that game, and we were without George Pickens for the first half, I don't care who was calling that game offensively, we're not winning that game. We were not going to score consistent. Not enough to beat them. We just weren't. It could have been closer, but I don't think we're going to be we were going to beat LSU last year. That LSU team, like I said earlier in the show, was the best LSU team or the best college football team I've seen in my lifetime. There's been some really good teams. That was probably the best that I've seen since I've really been closely watching college football, which has been the vast majority of my life. So I don't think we're going to beat LSU, but here's what I would say. I do think that we would have beat South Carolina at home. I think it, there are a couple of reasons why we lost the yeah, game. That, that I do agree with, yeah. Yeah, so and here's the thing. If we if we would have beat South Carolina at home, then we're probably still in the college football playoff. Now, who knows how far we would have gone in the college football playoff, but we were still probably going to get in. If, that was, if our only loss was to LSU in the SEC title game, as good as they were, I think we would have gotten in over Oklahoma with that being our only loss. I believe that we would have. So I think, yeah, it could have made a difference. I don't think it would necessarily have been the difference between winning a national championship or not because I think, I mean, LSU was still there. If we didn't beat them in the, in the SEC title game, we probably weren't going to be in the national title game. But crazy things happen. Uh, I just don't know if we had the players offensively at the skill positions with the injuries. I just don't know if we were there at that time. So, yeah, I don't think it would have changed like the necessarily the overall end game. Like we were not going to win the national title, but I think we probably could have gotten in the college football playoff. And that would have certainly, I mean, look, when getting the sugar bowl, winning the sugar bowl, it's a nice thing, but getting the college football playoff, that's something that you can sell to recruits. And I know we're recruiting at an elite level right now, but that's just something extra you can put in your tool chest when you're going out there trying to recruit the best players in the country. So I would have liked for that to happen. And, and once you get in the college football playoff, like I said earlier in the show, who knows what can happen, right? Like you get the right matchup in the semifinals, you get the national title game. Maybe LSU, you know, Joe Burrow has the worst game of his life, throws three picks. Maybe he gets hurt in that game. I mean, I don't wish on anybody, but, you know, things can happen and you could possibly win it all. Like the best team doesn't always win. So we probably would have been the fourth best team in the playoffs. Almost certainly would have been the fourth best team in the playoff last year if we would have gotten in. But, hey, man, I think we were close enough, especially defensively, 
to potentially like if crazy things happen, have a shot. So yeah, you know, it would have been a little bit different. Uh, all right. Next up, we got a question from Daniel. He says, maybe I'm late to the party with this question. I hope Jamie Newman is going to be great, but if he is, how did he end up at Wake? So this is an interesting question, Kurt. I, I think it's a good question. It's a question that we, we need to address. So we're all really excited about Jamie Newman, myself included. I was kind of leading the charge. We found out Jake Fromm was going pro. The first thing I threw out there was Jamie Newman, Jamie Newman, Jamie Newman. He was the guy I wanted in the grad transfer market. So I was leading that charge. I'm guilty as anyone out there. But this is an interesting question. I think it's fair to at least consider this. If he is so good, Kurt, why was he at Wake Forest in the first place? How do you explain that? Um, I mean, you're seeing it a lot. I mean, just because these guys go to these smaller schools doesn't mean that they aren't going to develop into quarterbacks. You've seen a lot of quarterbacks taken in the first or, first or second round the last couple of years that didn't go to these you know top D1 schools, uh, Carson Wentz, Josh Allen, yep. people like that where they're overlooked and barely have any offers coming out, but yet they end up – you know, they grow in subs, they find a, maybe they didn't play in a system in high school that really showcased their skills. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, so just because they don't go to a top school, even in high school, where that, you know, allowed them to be successful doesn't mean that they're not going to develop into better quarterbacks than per se. Like, I mean, yeah, he started awake, but he could end up being a higher pick and a better quarterback than Jake Fromm, who was one of the top quarterbacks in his class. Yeah, I mean, look – Recruiting is such an inexact science, especially when it comes to quarterback position. And the big reason for that is all things are certainly not created equally in the high school football world. That's just the reality of it. You have lower classifications, you have higher classifications, you have guys that run different schemes, schemes that fit their skill sets, schemes that don't. Because it's not like you necessarily, in most cases, I know some schools go out there and recruit, but most of the time you don't really get to pick what high school you play for unless your family moves into that district. So if you grew up in one district and you might be this uh, just incredible dual threat quarterback, but you have this like old school high school football coach who runs kind of antiquated scheme, it's not going to show off your skill set. So I think that's something you have to consider when you're talking about how do guys like Jamie Newman, who are a guy who's According to some draft experts, a potential first-round draft pick next year. How does he start at Wake Forest and have to work his way up into a big-time Power 5 program like Georgia? And so I think there's a lot of reasons when it comes to the recruiting aspect of all this. Number one, go back to the high school level, like scheme. Again, if you are a quarterback and you just are in a system where your skill sets are not featured, like for example, the high school that I went to, I'm not going to throw the name out there because I don't want to throw shade on anyone publicly, but... When I was in high school, if you were a big-time college quarterback, if you were a Trevor Lawrence or somebody, then you probably didn't want to play at my high school because we ran the ball about 90-ish plus percent of the time. And when we threw it, it was like a quick seam route to the tight end or a real route to the tailback. That was that was like the big passing play in our playbook. It was like, get the tailback, go play action, have him run a wheel route up the sideline. That was about the extent of it. So our offense, even back in, in the early 2000s, was just completely antiquated. It was set back in like the 1960s and 70s. But that was the offense that we ran. So if you were a big-time quarterback with a big-time arm and you had aspirations of going to play big-time college football, you probably didn't want to play at my high school. So maybe your family would move out of the district or whatever. But I, I do think that that's a factor. And some players don't have the ability to just pack up their family and move out of the district. That's not a reality for all these players. So I think scheme plays a, a role in this. And if you look specifically at Jamie Newman in high school and the scheme his, his offense 
ran uh, when he was there. They only threw, like, I don't know much about Graham High School where he went to school. I looked up a little bit, but he only threw it 161 times in 10 games his senior year. And kind of put that into perspective for you. Trevor Lawrence, for example, here at Cartersville in the state of Georgia, his junior year, he threw the ball 406 times. Brock Vandegrift, who's currently committed to us right now uh, out of Prince Avenue, last year as a junior, he threw the ball 211 times in only eight games. He dealt with an injury for a good portion of the year. Even when he came back, he wasn't completely healthy, but he still threw the ball 211 times in only eight games. So Jamie Newman, clearly his arm, his skill set wasn't really featured at the high school level with the scheme that they ran. He also went to a really small school, and that factors into this as well. If it's more of an isolated school, it's smaller, it's kind of out of the way, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Now, look, a good college coach like Kirby is going to, you know, they're going to go to every single school, they're going to build relationships, and they're going to try to uncover anybody they can find wherever they can. They're going to turn over every single rock. But still, being a small school, it can be a disadvantage. In Graham High School, North Carolina, it's not a big a big area, a more populated area in North Carolina. They only had 768 students last year. They were in Division Two, the, the second smallest classification in the state of North Carolina. So it was a smaller school. And I think Newman probably was raw at a high school. I mean, I, I wasn't overly familiar with him coming out of high school. I know he was an Elite 11 prospect, was invited to some of those camps. But going back and watching his high school tape, he, there was a certain level of rawness in his game. You could, you could see the upside. But the thing is, when you're a university like Georgia or any other big-time recruiting power, you usually don't have to take flyers on raw quarterback prospects with upside. You usually don't. You're usually getting the guys like Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields and Jacob Eason, guys that are much closer to their ceiling and much more polished and ready to contribute right away. Jamie Newman wasn't ready coming out of high school, and I think that's a factor. A, a team like Wake Forest is the kind of program that has to take flyers on those kind of guys. They build up projects because they're not getting the Jacob Eason's. They're not getting the Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence's. They're not getting those guys. So they have to take guys like Jamie Newman, and, and once they pan out, once they develop, once they get close to that upside, then they can start thinking about, like, hey, let's transfer to one of these bigger schools, especially now with the grad transfer rule. And I think that's exactly what happened with Jamie Newman. Uh, and he, look, and a lot of these guys don't camp as much. Camping is a big deal when it comes to rankings and, and just the exposure that you get. And some guys go to a lot of camps. Some guys might go to a camp here and there. Some guys don't really camp at all. Some of them just don't play that game. But in terms of ranking and like developing yourself, developing your profile as a recruit, that's where most of these recruiting analysts that do the rankings, those are the settings that they do the majority of their evaluations. And that's really where the rankings are made. I mean, that, that's how you move up and down the rankings is your performance in a camp. And even if you go to a camp, maybe you shouldn't have a good day. Maybe the camp didn't really uh, you know, feature your skill set. Maybe you're a dual threat guy and it was more about throwing with your arm. And maybe you're not there yet as a passer. So there's a lot of different factors there. Uh, and look, I'll say this. I looked this up because I, you know, I always like to back up my opinions and what I'm putting out there with with as much fact and as, as much information as I possibly can. So I, I looked this up, and what I found was that only three of the top ten passers last year in 2019 were ranked four stars or higher coming out of high school. Yeah, Joe Burrow, Brady White, and Shane Bouchelle all were ranked four stars. None of them were five stars, and the other seven, 70 percent of the top ten passers in 2019 
were three stars or lower. So this is not altogether uncommon for all the reasons I just laid out. So yeah, I mean, I get where you might be coming from. Like, hey, if Jamie Newman is supposed to be the savior of this program, he's supposed to fix our offense and win us a national title, then why was this guy at Wake Forest? Why did we have to go down to the to the depths of the ACC to pull him out. I get the sentiment, but I think if you look at it a little bit more closely and look at the factors and the context around it, I think you might see that it's not altogether uncommon, and I certainly don't think it's necessarily something that we should be worried about right now. But it's still definitely a good question. All right, we've got time to get to, let's say, two more questions. We're going to have to hold the rest of the questions for part two of this show. I thought we might be able to get to a few more, but looks like we've gone a little long. Really, probably me gone a little long with some of these questions. So, two more here. We got a, a question from Wendell. Always appreciate the questions, Wendell. He asks, uh, "With Jamari Salyer being such a highly touted guard prospect, would you rather him stick to guard or let him move to left tackle? I know he's dropped some weight, but are his technique and footwork cut out for that position? I think this is a really important question for this season, Kurt. What is your take on this? Yeah, I'm okay with him moving the tackle. I mean. Um, you know, a lot of us thought he would be a guard, and he actually ended up being better at left tackle than he had been at guard. And when you go back and look at the Sugar Bowl, J- Jamari Salyer actually looked like the best tackle prospect um, on the team. He, uh, I thought even though Kate Mays was at left tackle and Salyer was doing right tackle, I thought he played right tackle better than what you saw out of Kate Mays whenever he would sub in for people and play right tackle um, his first two years here. Yeah. So I think that's – and so I think that, yes, he has the footwork and the ability to play a tackle position. And with him cutting weight, I still think he has the athletic ability and everything, and he's probably the best person on the roster right now ready to step into that left tackle position. Yeah, I actually agree with everything you said there. I th- Honestly, I think Jamari probably long-term has a higher ceiling at guard than he does tackle because I don't know if he has the length. I think – here's the thing. I don't think footwork and athleticism is the question. That's one of the things, in my opinion, that made him such an elite guard prospect is because he had insane footwork and athleticism for that position. Now, it's somewhat, it's somewhat wasted to a degree on guards because you're not out there on an island defending pass rushers like, like a left tackle or sometimes right tackles are as well. But you have to be able to, to be quick and have the footwork to pull and those kind of things. The, fact, the, the thing was, under our offense the past couple years, we just weren't doing much pulling at all. There was very little in the way of gap scheme run run blocking. It was all zone stuff for the most part, I think 75 80% of the time. So it was kind of wasted to a degree there. So I think one of the, the, one of the things that makes him such a good prospect is the athleticism, the footwork, those kind of things. What concerned me was the length. I didn't know if he had the length to hold up at tackle consistently. But we kind of saw this already in 2017 with Isaiah Wynn, right? Now, Wynn was not near his biggest salary, but the length is pretty similar with those two guys. And we saw how well Isaiah Wynn was able to hold up there. To me, length is important, but I think athleticism and footwork is more important to play left tackle. And I think he has that in space. I think he's got plenty of athleticism to play that position. And I think he'll do a good job playing. I think he's going to get first look there. And I think he's going to hold on to that spot just about all year long. The only guy I think that has the chance to overtake him would be Broderick Jones. If he is, if he proves to be ready early enough, then maybe you can move Sawyer over to right tackle. Because I think Broderick Jones has that combination of, of size, strength, athleticism, and length as well. Where Jamari has most of those things. He's got the power. He's got the footwork and the athleticism. He doesn't have the length. But – I just don't know if he has the total package like a guy like Broderick Jones does if he gets to that point. He's just Jones just a little further away right now considering he's going to be an incoming freshman. So, yeah, I, I feel pretty good about 
Jamari at left tackle. In fact, I, I, I feel very good about Jamari at left tackle. I think we're going to be just fine there. I think he's a better prospect than Isaiah Wynn was, at least come out of high school. And if Isaiah was able to play that position as well as he did, I think Jamari's going to be just fine. I'm more concerned about right tackle right now, honestly. I'm far more concerned about right tackle. I mean, I think we have some good options there. I just don't know who's going to win that job. So I think that's where the battle is. I don't really think there's a battle left tackle right now. I think it's, I mean, there'll be a competition. There always is. But I think Salyer is uh, right now the clear-cut leader heading into fall camp if we do indeed, God willing, get there. So good question, important question. I think I feel pretty good with where we are with Jamari Salyer. And the last question we're going to get to today, I'm going to pick out a fun one to end on. And uh, if we did not get to your question today and you sent one in, trust us. We will get to it later on in the week. We just uh, don't have time to get to them today. So we're not going to leave anyone hanging. We will get to you. Just uh, check back with us later on in the week. So the final question today, got a fun one here from John. Appreciate the question, John. He asked about every two years I order a new jersey, usually one I can wear for more than a year. The last one was from, and the time, uh, and this time it was hard, but I ended up picking, I ended up going with Pickens. And before that, it was Chubb, Michelle, Gurley, Noshaw. If I wanted to get another jersey, who's your pick? I still need one for defense. So we're going defense here, Kerr. So if John is going to get one more jersey, going to alternate between two jerseys, he has his offensive guy. He's got George Pickett, which I think is a good pick. He needs a guy on defense. So who are you going to recommend him to get a jersey from? I'll probably go Nolan Smith. All right, Nolan Smith was one I thought of. Why Nolan for you? Um, I just think he's going to be the game changer guy. He's going to get a lot of rap, uh, rap as he's a, you know, a pass rusher and things that he can do in the game. He's going to get a lot of attention. Yeah, my, my two uh, were Nolan Smith. He was my backup choice. My first choice is a guy we already mentioned earlier in the show, Keely Ringo. And you guys, it's for the same reasons I just laid out for you guys. I think he's going to be a star. He might not start in year one. But I think he's going to be a starter for at least two years, and only two years, if he doesn't start this year. Because I don't think he's staying after year three. I think he's going to the NFL. I think he's going to be a superstar for us. I think he's going to be a potential top ten draft pick. So I would go Keely Ringo. Plus, he has uh, what is he going to be number six? I think is that right? I honestly don't know. I know on all of his recruiting trips, you know, when he took pictures and the uniform and all that kind of thing, he was always wearing number seven. But Tyreek Stevenson, who was a true freshman last year, already has number seven, and I don't imagine he wants to give that up. So I, I, I think I've seen or heard somewhere that Ringo is just going to go down a number and go to number six. Don't quote me on that, but I don't think that we have a guy – Currently on the defensive roster, that is number six. I know we've got Kenny McIntosh on offense, so I think six is the number. Again, don't quote me on that, but it'll probably be a single-digit number, which is always a good look. And I know Nolan's also single-digit with number four. And he's going to be a, a big-time player as well. He might end up being a top-ten draft before it's all said and done. Let's not forget he was the number one player in the country coming out of high school last year. So you can't go wrong with either one of those guys, but those would be the two that I would look at if I had to pick a defensive guy. So uh, good luck with that, my friend. Let us know who you end up going with. But all right, guys, that does it for us today here on the Glory UGA podcast. We only had about 45 minutes originally, but we ended up going an hour. We got through as many questions as we possibly could. Again, we'll get to all the other questions later on this week, and there are some really good questions that we still have not had a chance to get to. So check back in. Later on for that, we were going to run our Alabama version of the Scout and the Enemy series later this week. So we'll just push that back to next week. So we'll have that for you guys. That's cool. That gives us an extra weekend to do some additional scouting and to make that show even better for you. So check back for that next week as well. But thanks for listening, guys. You know we appreciate it. For Curtis, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs.